As the ushers make their way through the church, would you please open up to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11. This morning we'll finish the second part of a sermon titled, The Folly of Judging Jesus. Clearly, it's not only foolish to judge Jesus, it's sinful. And we know that's exactly what will happen as we make our way through Luke's gospel. Eventually, the religious leaders will, in fact, judge him in a court, a bit of a kangaroo court at night with false witnesses and contrived accusations. But that's not the judging of Jesus that I'm calling our attention to in this series. I made the argument last week that every person is guilty of judging Jesus, of judging God. Every person. And I'll continue that argument today. Last week we saw a group of people after Jesus casting out a demon working one of his many miracles, accusing him of casting out demons by the power of Satan. And say, why would, they, why would they possibly do such a thing? The reason is because they had become convinced that they were good and wise in their own eyes. And then this man came along who was like no other man, perfect, preached with authority, loved compassionately, spoke truth, and performed miracles the likes of which no one had ever seen. And he told them, you are not good and you are not wise. And now we have a dilemma. What happens when we've become convinced we're right and we're good and God tells us otherwise? It would be wise to humble ourselves and agree with God and ask him for wisdom and for forgiveness. Yet these people doubled down, so to speak, and say we need an explanation for his miracles because those are undeniable, yet he can't possibly be from God. Otherwise, he would recognize us as God's shepherds of Israel. And to solve the dilemma in their minds, they decided Jesus must get his power from Satan. And Jesus said, that is ridiculous. Why would Satan cast out Satan? Simple logic. And by the way, if I cast out demons by Satan, by whom do your sons cast out demons? Because they're not very good at it. When you cast out demons, they come right back. And he tells a story about the demons leaving and coming back with seven others. And the final state of that man is worse than the first. Because all the Pharisees did was teach people to clean up their act through moralism. Not through humility and asking God for mercy. Not asking for God to change their heart. And that is the deadly danger of moralism. Or traditionalism, or legalism, or whatever ism you want to call it. It's not the gospel. 
Today we'll see a second group of people who, like the first group, but maybe not as bold in their accusation, demand to see a sign from Jesus. But first, let's see biblically this undeniable truth that every person is guilty of judging God. And we're blind to this. We're blind to this. That's the problem. We're blind to our own blindness. Romans 3. Paul, after making this argument about the righteousness of God being revealed, um, it's not a righteousness of our own. The just shall live by faith. And then the wrath of God is being revealed against all unrighteousness and ungodliness because man suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. And he goes on to say in Romans 3, What then, if some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God? Well, he's talking about the Jews, that you're not saved just by being Jewish. You're not saved by keeping the law. You're saved by faith. And Paul anticipates the counter-argument and says, well, what then? He, he, he just states the hypothetical question out loud, rhetorically. If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God. Will it? And Paul says, may it never be. Don't even go there. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged, when man or any other principality attempts to judge God, may God prevail when he is judged. And it's not because someone decided God will prevail or God won the argument. It's because God is the argument. He is the truth. He is goodness. That is why he'll prevail when he is judged and why we should never judge God. It is okay to humbly confess to God, I don't understand your ways. The way Job did. But then there's a line that we cross when we're no longer humbly asking God to help us with our difficulty in understanding and we begin to accuse God of not doing things the right way. And it's hard to know exactly when you've crossed that line. So this sermon is very much about being aware that we do that and it happens and that we need to take some steps in our life to guard against this human tendency. Paul goes on to say that we are all guilty of judging ourselves good and wise when God has not judged us as good and wise. Romans 3.10. It's one of these Awana verses we have the kids memorized. None is righteous, no, not one. How many are righteous? No, not one of us. No one understands No one seeks for God. 
All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery in the way of peace they have not known. Wow. That's quite an indictment, but it comes from God. This is all quoted from the Old Testament. And here's the summation there is no fear of God before their eyes. That is man's problem. There's no fear of God before their eyes. So I also said last week that the Bible gives us these stories about people from the past so that we can see human nature on display for the purpose of better understanding ourselves. It's easier to first see in someone else the problem in order that we could see clearly that it is our problem as well. This was the approach the prophet Nathan had to take with David, was it not? Hey, let me tell you a story about a shepherd who had one little ewe lamb, one little sheep, and, and then this other guy came along who had a whole bunch of sheep, and he stole this sheep that was dearly beloved by this man. And David, being a shepherd, was filled with rage, and he said, go Get me that man. And Nathan said, you are that man. You stole Uriah's wife. You, you had your pick of wives, and you stole his wife. And then you killed him to cover your tracks. And so we're going to look at the response of people in the crowd this morning with the anticipation that it's going to reveal something about us and our nature. Be careful that after being a Christian for so many years, you've developed such a disdain for the Pharisees in your heart, you know, like at a melodrama, boo, hiss, that you don't realize that they're just human beings like we are, and we are vulnerable to the same mistakes they made. So Luke eleven sixteen says others to test him. Really, you're going to test Jesus. Others to test him were demanding of him a sign from heaven. Luke eleven twenty nine. As the crowds were increasing, he began to say, "This generation is a wicked generation. It seeks for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah." And point number one is this wicked. Judgment. And by judgment, I say us looking at a situation and because of the wickedness of our hearts, judging when we should not be judging. They'd seen all the miracles, they've had plenty of light, and they're still living in darkness. They didn't need one more sign. And honestly, what sign would it be? He's walked on water. He's fed 5,000, fed 4,000, turned water into wine. He's calmed a storm. He's raised people from the dead. They want some kind of sign that could only be from heaven and not possibly be from the power of Satan. 
It's fascinating that Jesus dubs them a wicked generation. Because actually, if we went back in time to first century Palestine, these would be the people we would probably want to hang out with and live with. They worship the God of the Old Testament, and they seek to obey the law and live righteous, holy lives. The good neighborhood, probably with the, uh, the uh, good real estate market there. You know, it's got the schools we all want our kids to get into. You don't want to hang out with the pagans. These are the people we'd feel most comfortable around. And Jesus calls them a wicked generation. In fact, in John 15, 24, he says, If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sin. Of course, they'd have sin anyways, but he's saying they wouldn't have a particular kind of sin. Well, what, what kind of sin is that, Jesus? That they've both seen and hated me and my Father as well. They got more light, more revelation, more opportunity to believe in Jesus. And instead of believing in him, they hated him and hated the Father precisely because Jesus came and shined the light on their self-righteousness and their foolishness. And nobody likes to be told you're stupid and wrong. I think that's pretty universal. Nobody likes to be told you're a fool and you're wrong. And yet, the worst kind of sinner, the most desperate sinner, not desperate in the good sense, but desperate in the sense that they are so far away from God, is the kind of sinner who thinks he's not a sinner and is wise in his own eyes. The one who thinks he doesn't need a Savior because he has deluded himself into believing that he is good and wise. And each one of us have a measure of this in our fallen nature. We don't naturally get up in the morning doubting our opinions and questioning our goodness. Although we have no problem getting up in the morning doubting everybody else's wisdom and their goodness. How does Jesus respond to these people? With judgment, but with God, there's always mercy as well. It's a merciful judgment. See, he doesn't just say you're not getting a sign which he could say, he could say, you've had enough signs. You don't need any more signs. What you need to do is repent. But he does say, you are going to get one more sign. Of my choosing, not yours. For just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, ouch, to be compared to the Ninevites. Now that was a wicked and corrupt generation. So will the Son of Man be to this generation. Just as Jonah was to the Ninevites, the Son of Man, Jesus, will be to this generation. Well, we can make 
the connection. Jonah was sent to preach a message of repentance. Though he was a reluctant prophet, Jesus is not a reluctant prophet. So there's parallels, but there's differences as well. The similarities, though, being that they both had to go to a wicked generation that needed to repent. The Ninevites probably knew they were wicked. Israel doesn't think it's wicked. So there's, there's a key difference. Jonah was swallowed up by a great fish and spent three days in the belly of the great fish and then was spit back out into the land of the living. Jesus was swallowed up by the grave and spit back out three days later. Only he wasn't spit out. He, by his own power, I lay down my life, I take it back up because he has authority over life and death. And appeared and preached the message of repentance again. The Ninevites repented. Even though Jonah didn't want them to repent. How well Israel responded. Well, we know how they responded. They killed Jesus. And they rejected his message. And Israel was judged in 70 A.D. Jerusalem was sacked burned to the ground, millions slaughtered. Nineveh was spared for 150 years. Nineveh was spared for 150 years. And so Jesus pronounces this very sobering judgment. Judgment in the final prophetic sense. We're using the word judgment in two different ways here. Uh, Judging, meaning evaluating your circumstances, versus that final judicial judgment. And this is what he says, The queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, will rise up with the men of this generation at the judgment and condemn them because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Queen of the South, she had a little bit of light. She heard of the nation Israel and Solomon and his great wisdom, and she left the comforts of her own kingdom and the safety of her own palace and took her entourage to Israel and brought gifts and sat at the feet of Solomon. And she believed in the God of Israel. These people had God in their very midst. They didn't have to go find him. He found them. They had all the light you could possibly want. And they're still asking for a sign. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, which wasn't great preaching. You got a preacher who really didn't want his audience to listen. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. In 1 Kings 10.9, we hear 
the Queen of Sheba's response, she says, Blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you to set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. Therefore, he made you king to do justice and righteousness. She got it. And the Ninevites repented as well. As an aside, I I know we've all had this question before, so it's good to humbly and carefully ask these questions without judging God. Why didn't Jesus stay longer after the resurrection and just confront the Pharisees in the flesh? You know, certainly they'd have to believe then. Well, the queen of Sheba didn't see the resurrected Christ and the Ninevites didn't see the resurrected Christ and they had no problems repenting and trusting God. So apparently seeing Jesus in the flesh is not what is necessary to believe. In fact, in Luke 16, you know this parable about the rich man and Lazarus. And they both die and Lazarus goes to be in Abraham's bosom. This isn't Lazarus, Jesus' friend. This is another man, a poor man. And the rich man is being tormented in hell and he says, it's too late for me, but will you send somebody to go tell my family and warn them? And we hear these sobering words. If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Moses, the first five books of the Bible, the prophets, the rest of the prophetic Old Testament. They've got plenty of light. Light's not the problem. It's willful blindness that is the problem. Jesus says to doubting Thomas, here, touch the wounds of my hands and my side. And Thomas believes and he says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says, because you've seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believe. There's the answer to your question. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Faith is Trusting in things unseen. Those who refused to believe could have had the resurrected Christ standing right in front of them and they would have come up with all kinds of reasons why that wasn't the resurrected Christ. In fact, there were heretical theories. It's it's a ghost. It's It's a different body that God is inhabiting. Called the God in a body heresy. Man will go to great lengths to not have to admit he's wrong and that he's evil. So Jesus wraps up this section of scripture by giving the crowd a familiar warning. And we've heard this warning in the Sermon on the Mount, which was preached in the northern regions in Galilee. He's now in the southern regions and they need to hear the same Message. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it away in a cellar nor under a basket, but on the lampstand so that those who enter may see the light. God's not hiding the light from you. Who does that? Who bothers lighting a light and then hiding it under a basket? Jesus is the light of the world. God has put him up on a lampstand because for three years he performed miracles, pretty much banished disease. 
from Israel, banished demons from Israel, taught with authority like no one's ever taught before, raised people from the dead. The light was on the lampstand. It was not hidden under a basket. Although later Jesus would say to those who refuse to believe, I'm going to start teaching in parables as a sign of judgment. I will hide the truth from you in parables. People who want to know the truth will ask what is the meaning of the parable. The rest of you will just be even blinder. At some point, willful blindness turns into judicial blindness. Don't ask me when that happens. That is God's business. But certainly clearly revealed in Scripture that you can harden your heart to the place where God hardens it eternally. And you're to blame. Make no mistakes about it. You're to blame. Jesus goes on to say the eye is the lamp of your body. So he's changing the metaphor slightly. Going from the physical realm to the spiritual realm. The eye is the lamp of your body. Your spiritual eye. Your your spiritual perception. And sometimes he uses the metaphor of the ear. And sometimes the heart. But the, the idea is that there's plenty of spiritual light out there. The problem isn't with the light. It's with our perception. It's with our seeing and our hearing because of our hard hearts. The eye is the lamp of your body. And when your eye is clear, when you're perceiving spiritual truth correctly, your whole body will be full of light. We prayed this morning, Paul's prayer in Ephesians 1, that God would open the eyes of our heart. We love to sing that worship song. I want to see you open the eyes of my heart. But when it is bad, when, you're, when your spiritual perception is bad, your body also is full of darkness. And he says in the Sermon on the Mount, if what you think in your body is light turns out to be darkness, how dark is the darkness then? I mean, if you think darkness is light, you're in for a surprise. You are deluded. You don't even know you have darkness in you. You think it's light. That's that's the scary danger here. This is a very sobering message. I will confess it's my greatest fear as a believer. I know that I know the truth. I'm in the truth. I've been justified by my faith in Christ. I'm not afraid of losing my salvation. I'm afraid of deluding myself and thinking I now know everything God knows. I've got it all figured out. It's my greatest fear is to be the, the one guy who doesn't know what he doesn't know. And not listening to anyone. Oh, they're all wrong. They're all blind. That's my greatest personal fear. The thing that is heaviest on my heart as a pastor is when I see one of the sheep in that place. Male, female, husband or wife, teenager, old, young, 
Doesn't matter. Self-delusion hits everybody. And when it really takes hold, really, there's 800 people in this congregation. They're all wrong. They're all sitting here, sitting under delusion and false teaching. But you have figured it all out. And there's nothing you can do but pray for that person, have pity on them, and hope God humbles them quickly. These are the things that keep me up at night and make me thin. <laughs> and yet I trust in the Lord's providence. Only, only God can do something about that. We proclaim the truth. We preach the truth. We pray for one another. We be on guard personally against self-delusion. We, we can put things in place, and I'll share with you some of those things you can put in place to guard against this. But at the end of the day, we have to recognize that we're all vulnerable to this. And circumstances in life can change rather quickly where you're even more vulnerable to deluding yourself. And it just, in the, in the, in the moment, it makes perfect sense to you. And every piece of information that comes in is just further evidence that you're right. Man's problem is not that he doesn't have enough light. That is not the problem. John 3.18, He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. What does light do? It shines the light of truth on error and evil. One commentator said it's like turning on the light at night in the kitchen and the cockroaches scatter. They, they don't want to be seen. They don't want to be exposed. And we should be saying, I want to be exposed. Lay open my heart and show me, Lord, where I'm missing the mark. So I can repent and change. And so where I can replace foolishness with wisdom. Man's problem is that he replaces light with darkness and then he calls it light. That's the problem. Man replaces true light with darkness and then he calls the darkness light. Is that not our culture today? And when you're convinced that you're in the right, you will even resort to violence as we're seeing because we've got to do something about all these evil, wicked people. Christians? Romans 1.19, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. Plenty of light, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God... Here's the problem. They did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. And it goes on to say that they start calling what is good evil and what is evil good, and they celebrate with each other their wisdom, their enlightened views of the world. Again, easy to see in others, hard to see in ourselves, but we're all prone to this. 
So we must be on guard. So Jesus gives this final warning and a promise. He says, then watch out that the light in you is not darkness. That is absolutely scary to think that the light in me might actually be darkness. I love to win an argument. I don't like admitting when I'm wrong, even when I know I've lost. It's, it's a horrible trait. Well, I was only wrong because I didn't have enough information. Or I only did this because you did that. You know, so then you're not even taking responsibility for your wrongness. So how do we get illumination? Here's the promise. If therefore your whole body is full of light with no dark part in it, it will be wholly illumined as when the lamp illumines you with rays. We have this promise that we can be illumined. See, we're not going to fall into that error of postmodernism where we say, well, then I guess nobody can ever ascertain the truth. I mean, who are we to say we know the truth? Well, that's a truth statement right there. So you can't live life like that. Jesus says, and look at all the words I've underlined, all the superlatives. Your whole body is full of life with no dark part in it. It will be wholly illumined as when the lamp illumines you with its rays. If we humble ourselves before God and admit that we don't see well and that we easily delude ourselves, but we want to know truth and show me truth, God, and I'm hungry for truth. Show me where I'm wrong. Show me where I need to repent, God's will illuminate our hearts by the Holy Spirit and His Word. First, though, you have to be suspicious of your own rightness. Then you'll be ready to be filled with light. It's not someday when I delude myself. It's as I delude myself. If you have that someday I may need this attitude, you'll never be there in your mind. I'm sure someday I might delude myself. Guess what? It's happening right now. When we go to the Word of God, it tells us immediately this is our problem. And ironically, our first response to that revelation from God is, I don't think, I don't think me. Oh, you're doing it. You're doing it right now. So how do we avoid replacing God's light with darkness? One commentator brought out this passage in Revelation. I thought it was perfect, so I'm borrowing it. Revelation 3.16, you know the letters to the seven churches. This is the letter to the church at Laodicea. We know this one for the I will spit you out of my mouth comment, but then we don't read on. And it's the rest of the comment that I really want us to focus on. He says, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and I have need of nothing. This is what 
the city of Laodicea was like. It was wealthy, cosmopolitan, it had everything, and they had no idea how spiritually corrupt they had become. Commentators think there was one thing that Laodicea didn't have in the physical realm. They didn't have hot or cold water. There were no hot springs around, and by the time they pumped the cold water into the city, it was lukewarm. So there, there's something you don't have. Other commentators thought it was the other way around. That's not the point. The point is these people were deluded. They were self-blinded. They thought they were rich. And he says, you don't know that you are actually wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and eye salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. I'll quickly go through these three things and that's where we'll close. If you're a note taker, now's the time. Number one, buy gold refined by fire. What is, what is the gold refined by fire? It's the Word of God. God's Word will reveal to you the truth. Not your opinions and your evaluation of the world. And it will give you an accurate depiction of yourself. It's the perfect mirror. It shows us what we don't want to see about ourselves, but desperately need to see about ourselves. Make sure when you read God's Word that you're using the proper hermeneutic. That's a fancy word for method of interpretation. Because you could say, yes, I want gold refined by fire, and I have the Word of God, and I will only go to a church that preaches the inerrant Word of God, and... I'm all about the truth of God's word and I would never replace God's truth with my own opinion and then use an interpretive method that makes God's word say what you already wanted it to say. And you don't have the truth now. Don't use the Bible to back up your own ideas. Let the Bible establish your doctrine. Be suspicious of your own wisdom. And surround yourself with other Christians who handle God's word in this way. That means coming to church and sitting under the preaching of God's word and making sure that the pastor is interpreting the Bible in this way and that there's safeguards in the church for keeping the pastor from falling into error. That the elders are studying the word of God and that they invite the congregation to be like the Bereans and study the Word and come when you have a question or you hear something that's just not quite right. You attend Bible studies. And if you lead Bible studies, you can't always be the leader. Right? And you need to hear what other people have to say, although sometimes you can pool your ignorance for sure. That's why we need to be in a church where people are studying God's Word. So when we gather together, we can self-correct when somebody starts to drift. And your small groups are perfect for that as well. Just make sure your small groups aren't so small that it's just you. 
<laughs> and that one other guy who always agrees with you. Secondly, Jesus says to buy white garments. All right, so the buying gold refined by fire is the corrective for I have my own wisdom. No, you don't. You need gold refined by fire. The second thing you need to buy is white garments. I'm a good person on my own. No, you're not. You need to go get the white garment Jesus gives us by faith. Now, you're not literally buying it. We know you don't buy your salvation. Jesus purchased our salvation on the cross with his own blood. But you understand the metaphor. Laodicea was this extremely wealthy city, but they were spending their money on all the wrong things. Go study the gospel. Like the treasure in the field. Sell everything and buy the field because the treasure's in that field. Remind yourself daily of the gospel that you are not righteous on your own. Be suspicious of your own own estimation of your goodness and righteousness. You know, you, you got to wake up each morning and instead of autopilot saying, I'll probably do everything right today and good. Lord, help me be on guard for my own arrogance, my own pride. Help me to understand that other people see things differently than I do. And they can probably see the sin in me better than I can see it in myself. Because I can certainly see their sin in them better than they see it in themselves. We'll turn about's fair play. Thirdly, by eye salve so you can see. One member was sharing with me just a few minutes ago that perhaps um, that water had medicinal qualities that they could rub on their eyes and clean out their eyes. But The point is that we need to be able to see clearly because the eye is the lamp of the body. So how do we clean out our eyes? You have to cultivate humility. You have to know that you are blind before you seek the cure for blindness. And you won't know you're blind without God's revelation and the body of Christ. We need each other to point out each other's blindness. Ask the Holy Spirit to open the eyes of your heart. Be careful with this one. All too often I hear people come and say, yeah, well, the Holy Spirit told me that I was in the right. And the Holy Spirit may be saying, hey, don't drag me into this. I I didn't tell you that at all. Surround yourself with lots of people, lots of people, who know you well enough to see when you are deluding yourself. Avoid echo chambers, hanging out with people who are just like you and always agree with one another. Have old, older people in your life, younger people in your life. The body of Christ is diverse for that reason. We're all unified under sound doctrine, but because we can all lose our way. We need each other. That's what breaks my heart when a sheep wanders off from the flock because they've decided they have it all figured out and we're all the blind ones. It's a numbers game, people. What's more likely to happen? One person being blind or 800? 
though 800 could be blind, for sure. But I would be very suspicious with those numbers stacked against me. Finally, ask people often to give you an honest evaluation of your life and assure them that you really want to know where your blind spots are. That's called being approachable. I was sharing with the staff this Thursday. If I came to them and said, hey, what would you think of the sermon Sunday? You know, give me an honest opinion. I'm not sure it hit the mark. That's a lot different than going, hey, what would you think of the sermon Sunday? You know, there's only one thing I want to hear in response with that tone of voice. You know, that's not inviting criticism. And so when we go to one another and say, hey, I'm convinced that the Bible tells me that I delude myself into thinking I'm wiser and better than I really am. Can you help me see what I can't see for myself? Really, I, I really want you to. Oh, that's, that's a hard thing to give people permission to do. But that's what it's going to take. And God deserves our best. And he loves us already knowing the stuff about us we don't see in ourselves. He loves us in spite of it. That gives us the confidence to say, okay, I guess I can be honest about who I really am and where my fallenness is still lingering. God knows already and he still loves me. Father, help us to be this kind of people. We don't want to walk around willfully blinding ourselves like the Pharisees. How terrible. How scary. How devastating. Thank you for having mercy on each one of us, opening the eyes of our heart that we would place our faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. But may we not stop at our justification. May we continue to ask for the eyes of our hearts to be opened so we can be more and more like Jesus each day for your glory and our good. Amen. Amen.